Hey everyone, you're listening to The Talent Revolution, where we believe that focusing on quality over volume and being different, not better, is the right way to hire the best humans and build stronger teams. To help you do this, I go behind the scenes with forward-thinking recruiters, employer brand experts, and people leaders making a huge difference to their organizations. I'm your host, Tom Hackwell, and on today's episode, I'll be speaking with Glenn Elliott, entrepreneur in residence at Tenzing, founder and former CEO of Reward Gateway, and author of Build It, the Rebel Playbook for Employee Engagement. At Reward Gateway, Glenn built a SaaS technology company that helped corporate and enterprise clients with their employee engagement journey, delivering a platform and tools that companies use to better communicate with, reward, and survey their employees. That, combined with his own efforts to scale the business to more than 400 people, caused him to develop his skills in people, company culture, and employee engagement. After stepping down as CEO in 2018, he teamed up with Deborah Corey and piled that knowledge into Build It, the Rebel Playbook for Employee Engagement, a book I personally love and, and have right here. And it's probably one of the most gifted books I've ever given to people. And I think we've got a bunch of those stashed away and ready to give away for listeners for free. And I'll touch on that at the end. Um, most recently, he's joined Tenzing Private Equity in a role that sees him chairing their entrepreneurs panel, developing their team of subject specialists and running their Sherpa program. We'll touch on all of this and a bunch more throughout the podcast today. In his own words, Glenn's lived a less than traditional life, which has given him a way of seeing things a bit differently. He's learned or been forced to question authority, challenge established wisdom, make his own mind up about things and decide what his own values and ethics are. Glenn splits his time between London, Berlin and Ibiza, can often be found stuck at London City Airport and has a real sweetheart of a dasher and cool Wesley. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us today. Tom, thank you very much. It's great to be here. No, brilliant. Pleasure's mine. I think... Um, look, there's so much ground to cover, and I think your background has got given us so much to work with here, right? Like, I want to start by sort of setting the scene on you as an individual. So can we touch a bit on your background, and, and let's go right back to the beginning. You talk about life giving you a bit of a different perspective. What was that sort of pre-employment journey like for you? Okay, so, so I grew up in the north of England. Grew up in a small town, South Shields, near Newcastle. That's where my mum's from. Yeah, okay, cool. I was born in 72, so I was kind of like, you know, formative years in the 80s, my early teens. Uh, my father was a director of a aluminium window company. He kind of worked his way up from being there. He was their first or second employee, and then he'd become my company director. Actually, he then ended up with like a big period of burnout, depression, and ultimately uh, redundancy and a real struggle with his own mental health. So I guess that was the first thing that was memorable for my teens, actually, was you know, living with him, going through that. I grew up gay in South Shields, which at the time was tricky. So, you know, it wasn't the most gay-friendly place you could be. I'm not sure anyone was in the 80s, actually. And it was an interesting thing. I was just mm-hmm. listening to your introduction there about, you know, having to, where you mentioned, like, questioning things and questioning authority. Something which probably a lot of people have, will have forgotten or just not know about was... In the 80s, the Conservative government at the time was legislating on something called Section 28 of the Local Government Act, which I was just talking to a friend about this morning, which was um, a whole set of legislation which prohibited local councils, schools and libraries from presenting being gay as an acceptable lifestyle. So that's a kind of remove any teaching and stuff around that. And that obviously wow. to me as a young gay teenager was, was very, very wrong. And ultimately the Section 28 was repealed many, many years later. I guess maybe that's the first mm-hmm. time when I realised that, you know, government could be really wrong about something. So I guess maybe that started a seed of me thinking that I had to form my own view about things in life and I couldn't just trust what other people said. Uh, and I think that's probably, whilst it might have been painful at the time and difficult at the time, it probably did me, did me good overall as I look back on my life. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean... 
that yeah that context is super useful to give us kind of an insight on where your perspective comes from because it couldn't not impact the way that you think about things and it couldn't not cause you to question stuff right yeah yeah totally totally so you know i kind of went to went to school reasonably good gcse's pretty terrible a levels i kind of had a rebellious time when i was 17 18 so i started off doing four a levels only got one that narrowed down my university choices to uh, two, really. I started my degree in Nottingham, what was then Nottingham Polytechnic, became a university while I was there. I actually finished my degree in London South Bank because I did a placement, I did a placement course. I got a job in London for a year. Came to London, bright lights, big city, fell in love with it, somewhere where I thought I could really make home. So I, I kind of moved to London in 1992, I think, in a I was lived there ever since, right up until last November when I moved to Berlin, Germany, where which is where I live now. Amazing. And so, obviously, again, lots to pick up there. But like moving into your career, where did you land post university, and and what took you there? Yeah. So post university, so university ended in say ninety two, and you know I did what lots of people did in those days, uh, which was look for you know a nice sensible program to join at a nice big safe corporate. And I joined the graduate program at BT, British Telecom, which was, you know, ex-public sector, done a lot of downsizing from its public sector days, but was still a nice place to work, a good place to work with, a, you know, a good, a good graduate program. And I was there for eight, nine, ten years, and they were happy years, actually. I was happy for most of my time at, at, uh, at BT. I had some good managers and leaders. The training was good. It was a respectful place to be. But obviously it's a huge organization, you know, even when I was there, 110,000 staff. And it was difficult to stay engaged in the context of what I now know as engagement, as in, you know, really understanding where the organization is going and wanting to play a meaningful role in that and, you know, really wanting to kind of bring your best self to your job and to work. And ultimately I became disengaged at work at BT, even though I didn't really know what that meant. But I remember kind of not really caring about it anymore and being feeling very, very distant from any real action of where anything happened. And I knew, obviously, even though I, you know, for my age, I kind of, I think I left BT when I was about 30. You know, I'd been promoted a couple of times. I had, I had a nice salary and for my age anyway, I was certainly happy with it. I thought I was well paid, but it didn't make any difference if I stayed there or not. I was totally meaningless in the world of BT. It didn't matter if I was there or not. Yeah, so I, I left and started my first business just to, I guess, do something that felt more real. And so what did that business look like? And I guess maybe before we touch on that, I think, how much did you, you talk about the difference between what you understand of employee engagement now versus the experience you kind of lived and felt when you were at BT. Did you think at the time, like, I'm disengaged and that's what's driving me away? Or did you feel like, actually, no, I just have a drive to start something of my own? I haven't even heard the term employee engagement when I was working at BT. I didn't understand any of it at all. But what I knew is I would get to work and start watching the clock. And actually, one of the best definitions I've mm -hmm. ever heard of employee engagement was by a French CEO a couple of years ago on a podcast. And he said, disengaged employees arrive at work thinking about what time they can go home. And I was that employee, absolutely. I used to get, you know, we had flexi hours of BT in my latter years. So your core hours were 10 till 4. Around that, you could do what you wanted. And I used to arrive at work at 10. And I would try not to look at the clock too quickly because you know if I, as soon as I looked at it I often I'd, I'd think I think maybe it's 12 I'd look at the clock and it was only 11 and I think oh god I've got to wait you know another five hours before I can go home so I was living through the symptoms of disengagement but I didn't know any of the terminology or anything you know so I didn't understand that it was happening because I didn't really know why we were there I didn't have any inspirational leadership really to follow I didn't really understand what my role was or what purpose 
I had. You know, I was just lost in a very, very large organization. And I had a job. I had several jobs when I was in BT, but certainly the job I had for the last two or three years there, yeah, I didn't really, it didn't really use any of my real skills. And I didn't really know why it was important. Do you think, obviously it's easy to look at this stuff in hindsight, right? But do you think in retrospect, there's anything BT could have done to have salvaged that with you? You know, you talk about maybe not seeing the role utilizing your skills and you're not seeing that why the role is important and things like that. Could they have reframed that experience for you and retained you? Or was it kind of a done deal at that point? That's interesting. I think could they have, I mean, going back sort of like, you know, me back sort of 20 years now. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it can be really hard for very, very large organizations. You're kind of 100,000 size organizations, especially when they're old. They're old. I mean, BT's, you know, as old as the telephone system because they haven't grown up in an era where we kind of understood these concepts in quite the way that we do now. So, mm-hmm. you know, the entire infrastructure, organizationally, management, training, everything isn't, isn't really geared around it. They're probably much better at it now than they were in those days because, you know, they've had 20 years and I'm sure they haven't had 20 years living in a cave. So I'm sure they're, mm-hmm. they're much better at it than they were then. And I do think there's always things you can do. I think, you know, fundamentally, you know, what do people want from work? Treat as well. They want to be communicated with openly and honestly. They want to, you know, feel that they're doing something that's either meaningful, you know, that the organization is doing, or meaningful for them, that they're you know, using their skills and doing something which is useful and contributing in a way. So the kind of the core concepts of engagement are not complex and they're not particularly controversial either. So I do think it would have been recoverable, but I don't think the organization knew how to do that at scale in those days. No, I mean, that, that makes total sense, frankly. And I think a lot of organizations of that scale still struggle with that today, even though they've had those 20 years of learnings, right? I think, you know, you left BT to set up your own business. What did that do? And how did your experience at BT kind of shape your perspective on starting your own business? Did, were you thinking at that time around organizational design and I'm going to make this a great place to work? Or were you kind of thinking more in, inwardly as like, I'm just leaving to set up this? Oh, no. I mean, I have no idea. You know, I, I, mean, I left BT as a, they called a level three manager. I knew nothing about organizational design. I knew nothing about HR. I knew nothing about running a business at all. My first business when I left BT, I actually, the first thing I set up was just, it was on the side, really. It was just to earn some extra cash. And I set up a business Mm -hmm. where trying to fix computers and stuff and technology in in my local area, I realized that was a real hiding to nothing, actually. Driving around on on a Vespa trying to (laughs) fix broken computers is not a way to make even significant pocket money, even in those days. Mm-hmm. So that kind of quickly morphed into building websites for people. You know, I was a software engineer by training. So that was something that I could do myself. And that was something which was interesting and I could add value. I've always had a good ability to see kind of users and customers and to empathize with how people use technology. So that was starting to use my skills in a way which I kind of, I was, I found exciting. And that morphed into branding and design. And I ended up building a design and marketing agency, which I ran for eight years. Not a hugely successful one. I got to about 20 staff and about a million turnover. And if you do the maths, that's about 50,000 turnover for each employee. So you're basically, if you're paying, I don't know what we're paying those days, 25 grand a year per person, you're basically breaking even on those sort of numbers, which is very common. You know, the vast majority of marketing design agencies in the world scrape from one month to the next because it's a market which is hugely oversupplied and commoditized. And I did that for seven years. It was there that I started to learn about people and about how to motivate and engage people. And I learned it through necessity. You know, I had, 
you know, starting with, with two, but ultimately 20 people. And I couldn't afford to... There's two things I couldn't afford. Firstly, I couldn't afford big salaries to attempt to attract or retain people because we just didn't have the money. And the second thing is I couldn't afford is I, I couldn't afford to have people not giving it everything because we were struggling for survival every month. I mean, every month was a struggle to bring in enough money to pay the bills, to pay the, the wages. So, you know, I learned by having no other option that... The only thing I had was, you know, myself and how I talked to people, how I communicated people, how I led the team, how I kept them connected with the journey we were on, what we were trying to do, what type of little agency we were trying to be. And I could see when you're running a small team of 20, you know, you, you don't need to do an employee engagement survey because you can see it on the faces of the people that you're talking to that you're in the room with every day. And I guess that's where I started to really learn what ultimately became my craft, which is, you know, engaging people and, and leadership. And I learned it in that, in that small agency. That makes total sense. And I think, you know, we've all seen how visible employee engagement is when you're in a small team and you can literally physically see people's faces and the reactions to the things you put in place. But what sort of drove you from an active interest in kind of shifting away from, say, the core of the business and thinking about people and engagement and organizational design to actually deciding that you were going to step away from that business and go set something up focused on solving that problem? Well, I think like, like all good decisions in my life, the kind of, it was frustration and crisis that kind of led me to a decision point. You know, it was kind of, um, it was a struggle running that agency, it was a struggle for everyone in it. We were never financially sound. We, you know, we had a hundred thousand pounds overdraft limit and we were always at the limit. Uh, we had a wonderful financial controller called Rizwan Kanval at the time who was adept at getting people to pay us quickly and paying other paying suppliers slowly. And he had a, a huge tool bag of magic techniques he would use to make that happen. He used to send flowers and chocolates to anyone who paid us early and stuff and things. And he was the best at making the money stretch. But it was tough. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people would eventually burn out from it and leave. And I remember... You know, there was a day with this account manager called Stephanie Wilkinson, who was fantastic. She was probably in her 20s at the time, but she was amazing. She could do the work of three people. And she resigned. And I remember thinking, Jesus, you know, God, even Stephanie's resigned. Everyone resigns from this business, and I'm just stuck here. And then I realized, and the reason I felt stuck was, you know, I think you've set up a small business, you know, you've put so much of yourself into it, so much of your your life has gone into it. I spent, I've invested seven years in that business, and it felt... You know, leaving it or walking away from it just felt like I was, I'd wasted seven years of my life. But I realized that whilst I might walk away from the business, what I was taking with it was everything that I'd learned. And I'd learned an awful lot during that time. I'd learned a lot about sales, about pitching, about you know, hand, um, responding to RFPs. I'd learned a lot about client service and managing clients and making clients happy. I'd learned a lot about apologizing when you screw up and get it wrong because... Back in those days, we were doing, we were still doing a lot of print media, a lot of brochures, and God, no matter how many times mm -hmm. you check those brochures, there's always a spelling mistake <laughs> in it somewhere. And you know, yeah. and every time you do it, you create another sign-off form, but it never really, really helps. So I learned an awful lot, and I realised I could take that with me to my next business. And I have become, I'd realised that when you're running a consultancy, it's very difficult to get that to scale and to get that to really be self-sufficient. I was never really chasing money in any particular way. I'm very fortunate that Reward Gateway, my next business, be did become very financially successful. Money was never really the drive, and I'm an engineer, so what my quest, my drive was to build something which had a life of its own, that could, where you know, every role, everything that needed doing had someone who could do it, and the whole thing would work when you stood back from it. I mean, it took me it took probably about 16 years for that to eventually happen with Reward Gateway. 
But that's really what kind of drove me forward. And I realized that to do that, I needed to invent a product business where you could sell essentially the same product to lots and lots of clients and get them to pay you, you know, annually for a great product and a great service. And that recurring revenue would lead to operational scale and, and then profits. All of which, like the whole journey that you've gone on up to the point of founding Reward Gateway makes loads of sense, but also kind of informs us on your opinion and how you got to that perspective, right? But I guess one of the challenges, and I've got on this myself, right, is like when you're setting up a product-based business, it's not long-term, yeah, it scales much better, it's much more of an exciting long-term business opportunity, but it's also harder to kind of get that flywheel spinning initially, right? And whilst selling time for money doesn't infinitely scale, it's also relatively easy to pay for yourself quite quickly, whereas with a product business, that's much more difficult. Like, how much conviction did you have going into the, the kind of whole reward gateway business that you could actually take this to fruition? And, and how did you get that flywheel spinning? I believe that that the product was sound, the idea of the product was sound. So Reward Gateway today is, a, is an integrated employee engagement technology platform. So it covers everything from benefits to rewards to recognition to surveys and communications. At the time we started, it was just an employee benefits business. So it just did one particular employee benefit. And it wasn't new. There were other people already doing that particular benefit. I just thought they were doing it very, very badly. I kind of stumbled upon it and thought they could be done a lot better. So I, I had conviction that the model was sound. I had absolutely no idea what the future would look like or how big it would get. And if you told me then how big it would get, I would never have believed you. I thought, I thought that was ridiculous. I think getting the five spinning is really tough. I knew we needed, I wanted to bring in everything I'd learned about marketing and advertising. I know that in sales, it's, I love it's about trust and about belief, you know, your customers and customers having reference clients is really important. So I knew getting our first reference clients was key. My agency, our biggest client was the BBC. We ran all the marketing for the BBC's internal staff members club. So I gave them the product for free, which meant that we got our first launch was at the BBC. I also had good friends who ran all the gyms at British Airways. So I knew the people in that team there. So British Airways was our second client, which again, we did for free. And then I found the contact mm -hmm. in, you know, in our trade magazine for next retail and I managed to give it to them again for free. So our first three clients were free, but then we milked the heaven and earth out of it in marketing. So back in those days, so probably in 2006 here, you know, people still got the trade magazine, which in those days was employee benefits magazine. We still got it in print in the mail every month. And we took out <laughs> full page adverts in that magazine for months saying, you know, this is the product, this is how great it is, and it's as used by BBC, British Airways, and Next Retail. Which just made everyone say, like, where did they come from? How did this upstart company that no one's heard of get those three landmark clients? And what surprised me was no one ever asked if, if we'd given them the product for free or not, which we had. Now it's probably much more common to do that, but at the time it, it wasn't. That's how we started this game. Cool. So we're going to transition in a second to kind of talking about this whole employee lifecycle, right, from recruitment through kind of onboarding, engagement, exit and things like that, and try and really just pull from all of your experience building that business and eventually selling it to help the audience kind of think about how they should be shaping their own employee lifecycle. I think before we do that, though, would just be great to touch on on sort of where you're at today, right? So you alluded to the fact before that you'd sold Reward Gateway and you'd sort of stepped away now and you're in a fantastic position that you've really earned over the past 16 years. You've got lots of choice, right? Why are you doing the role you're doing at Tenzing and, and what does that role look like? Mm -hmm. um, so on a bad day, I do ask myself that, why am I doing this? Well, um, <laughs> I think we all do. You know, the, the, thing, the thing that we really, you know, we really got into in our time at Reward Gateway, all as a big team, is, is making the world a better place to work. We, we all very much believe that, in general, work life 
is broken or not fully working. So there are many, many, many people who do not have a great experience at work. And it is fixable. And the great thing is when you fix it, or when, not even when you don't fix it, but when you make it better, businesses perform better. So we really spent, you know, 15 years really understanding that in more and more depth all the time. And, you know, that kind of takes you into, you know, into leadership, employee communications, company culture, diversity and inclusion. And it, be, it makes you kind of really interested in all of those things. And what I'm doing at Tenzing, you know, officially my job is to help our portfolio of companies grow. So Tenzing's a lower mid-market private equity investor. We buy companies that are often around 10, 15 years old, often founder-owned, and are somewhere between 10 and 20 million maybe in revenue. And our job is to try and help them grow and then sell them five years later for, you know, more than we bought them for to return profits to our investors. My job is to help our companies to grow. If I'm honest, that's not what I really get excited about. Uh, what I really get excited about, and that's my job, and that's my day job, and that's what I do, and I'm, I try and influence positively wherever I can. The thing that I get excited about at work, and I guess the reason that I do it, is kind of gently influencing the team inside Tenzing and in our portfolio to think more about those employee engagement and company culture things that I spent the previous 15 years really understanding. So I have a big passion for diversity and inclusion. I think we've been talking about it for far too long and not really doing enough, having enough results from it. And we really need to move on it. Because when you make your company more open and more inclusive to talent, when you understand your natural biases better so you can essentially, you know, unpick them, you can create some, you basically get, you can get the most amazing people into your organization that you might not have otherwise got, and you can really have an organization do some fantastic things. And that's what I'm really passionate and excited about. So that's really why I'm doing it. Makes perfect sense. I think we talked about translating your experience into a kind of real world actionable advice for the audience. I think like that's a perfect segue and a perfect place to start, right? So you talk about your role at Tenzing or the broader role of Tenzing being looking at and investing in these organizations and trying to take them to the next level kind of operation in otherwise so you can sell them on again. When you're meeting with these businesses for the first time or when you're starting to work with them as sort of the entrepreneur in residence that you are, how are you assessing them, right? Like, what's the playbook? What's the first thing you're digging into about these businesses to look at them from a people perspective and kind of work out where they're at on that maturity spectrum? So it's interesting, you know, my job is, my job is to help our companies grow, but also our whole DNA really is that we back founders and it's the founder or the CEO's business and we're there to support them, not to tell them what to do. If anything, gentle influencers rather than instructors and consultants that you know, they say you must do this, here's the playbook. So I don't, yep. I've worked really hard to resist the temptation to have a playbook, which I would encourage or I can't force anyone to do anything, but encourage people to do. But there are some things which I'm pretty sure do work in most or all cases on our medium to long-term plays that make a big difference. The first thing is about really opening up communication in an organization. So it amazes me how few organizations share with their employees what they're trying to do financially and where they currently are in the plan. So at Rewardgate, we went through three periods of private equity ownership. We called them seasons. So I've actually sought Rewardgate with three times because when you do a private equity deal, you tend to generally sell half of your shareholding and then they give you a bit more back for running the business and then you go on from the five years. So I've actually done it three times now. And in each of those seasons, we communicated with our whole employee base 
what we were doing, what the plan was, what the target was for five years' time, and then we shared all of our numbers, all the P&L, warts and all, all the good and the bad, every month so that everyone knew where we were. And it's, that's still really, really rare. We have a couple of companies in our portfolio who share sales numbers with their staff. They hold back from sharing profits. People generally get very nervous about sharing their numbers with their staff for all sorts of reasons. They worry that staff will behave in odd ways. But what I see is I see this terrible negative effect. Like if you share revenue numbers with your staff and you don't share profit, what will happen is your staff will generally infer profitability from either revenue or how busy they are. So what I've seen is so many times, we must be making loads of money because we're all really busy. And it's really unfair because, you know, I don't know why there aren't more staff because we must be making loads of money and that they won't hire new staff. That's why I hate all management. Very, very common response, yeah. Or yep. uh, someone would say, well, the sales director or the CEO always wants more sales. That's what they always want, isn't it? But I'm sure we're making a fortune. And the reality could be completely different. And I think there's a couple of really interesting, you know, examples from our portfolio just in the last few months. I was talking to one of our heads of IT and he was thinking he'd been looking at you know a new CRM system for their business, and he said, "I'm I'm not going to recommend it to the board because it's too expensive." And I said, "Well, how much is it?" He said, "Well, it's going to be a hundred thousand pounds a year." And I said, "Well, maybe that's not too expensive. You know, you're a twenty million revenue business that's trying to get to be a forty million revenue business. So, hundred grand a year doesn't sound that much to me." And he looked at me amazed and said, "We're a twenty million revenue business. I had no idea we were that big." And it's interesting, wow. isn't it? You know, how do you expect people yeah. to make decisions? Mm-hmm. And this was a head of IT, if they've got no idea what context they're operating in. So this was a person that, you know, has no idea how big the organization is that he's actually working in. And he's a senior member of staff. And I think that is certainly would be part, is part of my playbook is to, to talk to leaders about how do they feel about and can we kind of dig in and work through how they feel about being open with their staff about you know what private equity is, the fact that we you know we have to travel the size of the business in five about four or five years, what does that actually look like, and then taking people on a journey to do it. So that'll be part of it. Any organisation can do that because it's just about sharing. I'm also very passionate about employee share ownership. I've always had five percent of reward gateway owned by staff, and that shareholding has paid out on each of the three times that we sold the business. So. In 2010, when we sold the first time to Inflection, we had about 80 staff shared a million pounds between them. So you, know, you had nearly everyone getting a year's salary each, which was fantastic. And then in 2015, when we sold again to Great Hill Partners, we had about 260 staff shared from memory about, about seven or eight million pounds between them. And then Reward Gateway has just sold again and over 500 staff, current and ex, shared a significant amount of money just now the biggest amount ever. And I'm a really big fan of employee share ownership. It links very closely to open information because I, for me, I always found once you'd made everyone a shareholder in the business, I kind of felt like it gave me a permission slip to talk about profits in a way which was kind of like, you know, we're all trying to do this together and we all kind of win. And, you know, I kind of, there is nothing nicer when you do a big deal and you sell your business than, well, for me, there's nothing nicer than signing, you know, 260 letters with people's share payouts in. It's the best thing and it's you know it makes a meaningful difference to people's lives so i remember in in our second deal in 2015 you know the most memorable one for me was karina who was our cleaner she's our office cleaner she's been with us for three four years she got about eight thousand pounds and she used it to buy a plot of land in bolivia which was where she was from 
and she built a family house on it. And she's the first person in her family that's ever been a landowner and has ever had a house that they owned. And Karina's entire family, grandparents, the whole lot live in this house. It was life-changing for that whole family. And so I'm a big fan of employee share ownership. And I know that's not practical for everyone to do, but I do think it's something that people should maybe learn more about and think about. No, that's amazing. I think like I share those views massively, right? And I think that the thing about employee share ownership is you're right, like everybody's going on that journey with you, right? And the candidate experience and the competitiveness of the market has made like standing out so much more difficult. And unfortunately, employee share ownership is becoming more and more common these days. And I agree, I appreciate that it's not something everybody can offer. But the thing for me that's exciting, and I've not got to the position yet where I've written those 220 or 260 letters, but I can't wait, and hopefully that becomes a reality for me in the future and our team. I think the, the thing for me, though, is that you've set the standard and set the tone for those people, and you're giving them a, like a personal wealth event and a little bit of liquidity, but maybe enabling them to go do that again for their own business and their own team, right? You're setting the narrative for what good looks like, not just financially, but also morally, ethically, and otherwise. And, and like that sort of is as exciting to me as the, the pot of gold at the end of the tunnel, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think, you know, I mean, business is tough and, and it is tough to build a successful business. But I think if you're gonna do what's already a really hard job, you should kind of, you might as well do the extra bit of like, you know, trying to do it in a really, really great and ethical way where if you're lucky enough that you make it, you get anywhere near your goal or just to anywhere that's good, you can actually look back on it and say, do you know what, we did that and also we did some good in the world as well. And we, you know, we treated people rightly and fairly and, mm -hmm. and as generously as we could at the time. And I think that's kind of, because that's the stuff that's really meaningful. Life's not just about making money. It's also about how you make it. I think it's, it's really important. Couldn't agree more. I think that there's so many points to touch on here, right? But I think like if we start from this employee lifecycle journey at this point of recruitment, now like, I appreciate that, and quite rightly so, across the organizations you work with, there isn't one solidified playbook and everything should be kind of tailored to each organization as they stand alone. I think you've run your own recruitment process at Tenzing recently, right? You've built out this Sherpa program and you've kind of gone through a recruitment cycle. I'd love to understand a bit more about how you approach that and sort of what that process looked like. I was never personally in charge of recruitment at Reward Gateway. You know, in our early years, line managers did their own recruitment. I was actually very late to build an re re internal recruitment department, too late. And that's something I would, if I was ever doing a business again, which I have no intention of doing, I would do it earlier <laughs> next time. And then it reported to HR. And, you know, they were a good team. You know, they talked a lot about candidate experience and they were trying to be very, very good. Never done it personally myself until I came to Tenzing. And I think I did some senior level recruitment at Reward Gateway and I got involved in senior level stuff. And the thing that I really noticed was how often the job advert was really the root of problems. You know, I remember being in my apartment in Boston in the States once and I was talking to a guy called Rob Bolden, who was COO, and he said, oh, Glenn, you know, he said, I'm, I said, I'm desperately having desperate troubles trying to recruit client services staff, you know, client relationship managers. He said, all I need, all I want is someone who's passionate about client service and who really wants to learn. Someone who's passionate about making customers happy and really wants to learn. I can teach them everything else. And I said, okay. And then I looked at his job advert that was running on our careers website and it bore no relation to what he just said. It was, you know, this long, <laughs> great big thing of a hundred bullet points and things that the person had to have and jump over. And I said, Rob, why? He said, well, you, that's what you say you want, but that's not what you're advertising for. Why don't you go 
Why don't you just write what you've just said, write that on the advert and see who applies. And I've noticed this very consistently that often good managers, there's certainly managers who've recruited this role before, they have a really clear idea in their head as to what magic looks like. And it's often there's no relation to what they're actually advertising for. So that's the first thing I really noticed. The second thing I noticed was how often job descriptions and job adverts were generic and were not context specific. And there was a great example just about three years ago. I'd just stepped down as CEO of Reward Gateway. I'd recruited my friend Doug Butler to be the CEO. And he had previously been the CFO. So he was now CEO. We needed a new CFO. So I was out of day to day by this time. So between him, the HR director and the private equity investor, they kind of built themselves a CFO job spec and job adverts. And they went out, they got four candidates, and then they asked me if I'd be part of their recruitment panel. And I looked at the job advert, and this was a very nicely written, polished, generic CFO of a private equity-backed 30 million revenue business. You could have taken the reward gateway name off it and put anyone's name on it, and it would have been Mm -hmm. perfectly acceptable, you know. Lots of talk about reporting and, you know, the sort of reporting that people need and want, bank leverage, understanding banks, all that kind of stuff. But in my view, it was completely wrong for the job of the CEO in Reward Gateway, of the CFO, sorry, in Reward Gateway at that time. You know, Reward Gateway at the time was a, I don't know, 35, 40 million revenue business, but handled a, nearly a billion pounds worth of client money in reward and incentive. It had 2,000 clients, but because of all the benefits products and recognition products it had, it actually handled hundreds of thousands of invoices. So it was much bigger and more complex than actually it looked. And we had underinvested, mm-hmm. I had underinvested in finance technology in the preceding years. So far too much of it was manual. We had a 25 person uh, finance operations team in Plovdiv, Bulgaria, and we thought they were probably good, but we weren't really sure. Yeah, we had one FC in London and we had a CFO in London. And really the job was we needed someone who could come in, assess the Bulgarian team, work out if it was good or not. If it wasn't good, fix it or move it to a different country and would revolutionize our finance system. So we needed someone who was really, really technically literate and was a real finance systems person. And what was interesting, you know, when I did my interviews with those four candidates they got, I opened the interview by saying the job advert you've read is completely wrong. And here's my view of what I think the job really is. Three of the candidates looked absolutely horrified and said, this isn't the job for me. And one of them, Ellie Morelli, she just, her eyes just sparkled and she's like, oh my God, I was born for this role. And she's still the CFO there now. She's does a wonderful job. And I think, you know, in the same way that my mum used to always tell me that painting begins with preparation, I think recruitment it's really important to get that job advert right. And I think they are rarely right. And I see it even at Tenzing now, sometimes we'll have someone saying, you know, pop up on Slack on the All Staff channel saying, has anyone got the job description for a CTO handy? And I, I immediately <laughs> pop up saying, well, let's figure out exactly what type of CTO what you, you actually need, need. right yeah. now. You know, like, do you, you know, you know, what's going on in the business? What's it like? How messy is it? And I think there's too much, uh, yeah, there's generic stuff going on. I mean, I learned a lot of what I'm talking about, really, from a very short video published by Simon Sinek years ago. So Simon Sinek's the management writer who did Start With Why. So many people will know him. But one of his least well-known pieces of work is a four-minute video that lives on YouTube called Write the Perfect Want Ad. Want Ad being American for job advert. And it's a four-minute video that I must have played a hundred times to different people. I must use it every fortnight. 
with somebody about saying like, this is how you need to be thinking about your job adverts. Tell people exactly what the job's like in your organization, warts and all, and try and put people off. Because I think a really good job advert will put 90% of candidates off. Because if you, you know, I was hiring um, for a finance, senior finance person for one of our businesses recently. And I got the draft job advert from the CFO and it was, you know, it was perfectly reasonable as a generic ad. But I said to him, I said, am I not right in understanding that you've, you've only got, your finance systems are really patchy. He's like, oh yeah, we, so we've got some real gaps where we've got no system at all. We've just got like a pile of Excel and there's just a missing system. I was like, well, I said, well, you don't mention that in this job advert anywhere. He said, no. I said, well, you know, you're going to attract candidates who will be completely freaked out by that when they land. And they're going to, you know, if they take the job, they're not going to like it. You want someone who's going to enjoy this mess and maybe play a role in fixing the mess. But even if they don't, they're happy in the mess. You don't want someone to come from, I don't know, Shell or BP, where they've got, you know, a beautiful SAP system that everything just pops out of. You want someone that's used to a, a mess. And we changed that advert to be much more honest. I think that's really important. But it works, right? And we, we see organizations make these kind of mistakes every day. I think they aren't honest about their experience. And as you say, they kind of paint this very rose-tinted glasses picture. And the reality is they view recruitment as like an isolated task. And they make the hire and they feel like they've done their job, irrelevant of the fact that we know that person's going to fail two weeks into the role. But also, I think a lot of people aren't like the point you just made about seeing in slack who has the cto job description like in any company that's growing in any way the underlying requirement of that role is going to change every six months if not sooner right and like people i think try and hang on to people longer than they should yeah like people have a shelf life typically and we shouldn't be afraid of addressing that up front in my opinion yeah because in a growing business the job will change, you know. So the, when Ellie joined, if you take the CFO example at Reward Gateway, when Ellie joined, her job was to fix all that up. Now, arguably, it's a lot better now than it was. And there's a question, is she still happy there? Yeah, maybe she is, maybe she's loving it. Or mm -hmm. actually, maybe, you know, maybe she wants to go somewhere else and fix them up. Yeah, and that's fine. And I think you know, I've, I've written a lot about this over the years, about the myth of the permanent job. You know, I think the whole, our whole language around jobs is is wrong in my view. You know, we talk about permanent jobs or temp contractors. And, you know, temp contractors are kind of flighty people who are not really committed and who just come and then go and we pay them a lot of money and they normally leave the job half done. And permanent people, <laughs> well, there are rocks until the point that they leave and then they're disloyal. And then we don't like them anymore. We kind of, you know, expunge them from the website and the staff list and we don't speak to them anymore. And the reality, of course, is, is neither, neither of those things are really true. I've had several jobs and I've left them. It doesn't make me disloyal. And when I look at, at RG, you know, we, by virtue of the fact that we started with almost no money, we didn't have any VC funding or anything to start with, so we couldn't afford to pay much. Therefore, we were in, inevitably getting people who were younger in their career who didn't have skills that would command more money. So if you're hiring 20-year-olds, they're obviously going to leave at some point. The chance of them being with you to retirement age is extraordinarily slim. And I think that's okay. I refused to give my PE owner staff turnover metrics, because I just believe they're too flawed in a small to medium-sized organization. You know, if once you start reporting turnover as a thing, then people start thinking, well, I want to minimize it. And that, I think mm -hmm. you should let it be what it is, yeah? You need to look at, you know, why are people leaving and are people leaving at the right time? And I think, you know, people should leave a job when it's no longer really got the challenge that they're excited about anymore. 
um, when they're no longer enjoying it anymore, or when there's no longer a role in the organisation that's going to really make them really, really happy. And it doesn't have to be a shameful day. That can be just like, that's just how it is, you know? And I think it can be celebrated. Absolutely. There are loads of great people who have worked with Reward Gateway for a year, two, three, four, five years, and have really moved us on in a really great way in their part. And then when they've done their job, they've gone on to someone else that's great, which is fantastic. And there are, the odd one, there's a few. I mean, the, the Will Trax, who was engineer number two, is still the CTO there now. He's done long, more service at my company than I did. Uh, and he's amazing, and he's still firing all cylinders, and he's still nailing the job. And it's, but he's a real exception. It's very unusual. That's the thing, and I, I think, yeah, you, you know, you, you talked about that, and you talked about hiring a bunch of twenty-year-olds, and the, realistically, they aren't going to be at the company forever. But that isn't—it's not a bad thing, as you say. It's actually a really good thing. I think you probably wouldn't want them to be at the company forever, right? As you say, maybe in isolated examples, these people scale, and their kind of personal growth trajectory is in line with the company's growth trajectory. But in my experience, there tends to be like big diversion from those two things, positively or negatively, right? Yeah, and I think we should have a much more grown-up conversation with people about tenure. Like we used to have a chart in our management training packet, RG, called the Peak Plateau Plummet Chart. It's looking like a curve. Because what I used to see happen, it would happen very much in client services. You know, client services in RG, you're managing 30, 40 clients, maybe a million pounds of the revenue. It's a real slog. And once you've done it for three, four, five years, it can be just repetitive and you've had all the learning and you've had all the fun. And not everyone has the right skills to be a team leader and to move up and on. Some people just have to stay there. And what I would see happen is, you know, people start off in the role, obviously they weren't very good because they haven't learned anything yet. And then they'd go up the curve and they'd get better and better as they got more experience. And then they'd get to their peak where they were really, really good at it. And that would carry on for a time. And then they'd start to get bored and think, mm, God, is this all there is? I mean, I've done this type of client implementation now for the 55th time. And that's really the time when they should be thinking, maybe I've done all I need to do here. Maybe I've learned everything. But what would most often happen is they would stay until they became disengaged, until they become miserable, and they'd go down the plummet line. And then when they were really miserable, then they'd leave, which is often six to 12 months too late. And I think it's because we have this you know, association, this negative association with people leaving organizations, it's probably getting into ridiculous retention schemes and retention bonuses and stuff, which, you know, there should be no need to handcuff someone to a job that they're enjoying and they're doing, you know, a good job of and that they're happy. Yeah, I think we need to really think about how we think about tenure. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a, there's a great book called The Alliance that I like harp on about all the bloody time, which really talks exactly about this, right? It frames this tour of duty concept, and, and I'm sure we'll dig into that another time. But I think, like, you talked about people overstaying their welcome, I guess, is the wrong way of putting it, right? But, like, going past the point of engagement and productivity and staying because they need to stay. And I think you see that a lot when we talk about employee share options and golden handcuffs and people sort of staying because they feel like they need to stay and nobody benefits from that right like instead like the first question we ask when we hire anybody at pinpoint through their onboarding is what do you want to do when you leave pinpoint and when do you think that's going to be right and there's no wrong answer to that question but the point of the question is right well then how can we frame the next one three five years of your time here so that, yes, you're your CSM and you're managing your 40 clients and your million of turnover, and yeah, it's like painful and it's hard and it's a slog, but you're getting this out of it. And we know that in three years you want to go and do X, and we're going to make sure that we're the best place for you to be as a stepping stone toward X, right? And like, it's been the single most impactful thing we've done from a 
sort of employee engagement perspective and we don't really track retention like we don't want people to leave because they're pissed off and we don't want people to leave because we've done something they don't agree with but we do want people to leave eventually and go on to the right thing for them and not sit in the position that doesn't make sense i think nobody wins right i just found retention such an erroneous statistic you know like and i think back there's a we had a guy running retail services who i call ross the shortest tenure of anyone running that department probably about 18 months but he was an absolute mm -hmm. magician in affiliate marketing and at the time he joined us we were useless at it we were a bit big in it because we'd become large but we didn't know what we were doing and he completely transformed our relationship with the affiliate marketing industry and really really moved us on and some people might look back on him and think well he wasn't there very long that's a failure i look back at him and think oh thank god we had him because if we hadn't we'd have never really got to grips with that part of that business and i think you know some people deliver their best work at 18 months and some people do it over five years and occasionally someone does it over 10 which is wonderful but i think it's about you know what you do what you achieve is really important and i think 10 years is a very poor measure of it no i couldn't agree more i think moving on right so we've touched a bit on recruitment and, and frankly we could sit and talk about recruitment all day but i just want to touch on some of the other kind of experience you have across that life cycle right so where does onboarding play into this what are the kind of key points that people need to be thinking about when they're you know they've gone through a recruitment process i'd seen something you'd put out recently on twitter i think which was your sherpa onboarding program and i looked at that and i thought like this is a masterclass in how to do this right talk to me a little bit about where you'd advise people there so it's interesting that so that sherpa induction program which i ran for the first time uh, last year i'd never run an online induction program before and i get asked all the time and everyone's still trying to figure out you know what the whole new hybrid remote working thing means and stuff and you know i don't know how many times someone said to me but you can't onboard people virtually glenn can you it's just not possible and i'm like and it's because if the truth is we have all collectively been in criminally lazy onboarding forever yeah you know in yep. reward gateway in reward gateway the, the recruitment team got really good at giving you a wonderful welcome to the company pack you know, so you've got like a box with like gifts and all sorts of fun stuff in it to make your first day nice. But still, you know, mm -hmm. in our early days, our first half of my time there, onboarding training was like, you know, go sit next to someone else who's doing the job and let's just hope that osmosis will occur and you might learn something. And you just have to be much more deliberate about that, about things. And actually, I don't think it makes any particular difference. I think whether you're remote or you're in a physical place, the difference in onboarding quality is huge depending on how much time we spent planning on it. And what I did with that onboarding was I just thought, what are all the different things that this team will encounter in their working life? Because it's a team of people who we embed with our CEOs to help them scale their business faster. So the truth is, we don't know what they're going to be doing from one day to the next. So they've got to understand all about business. So I, you know, I thought, okay, well, I've got to teach them, like, you know, what is private equity and how does that work? Basics of business, valuation, Got to do some ethics and integrity because you know otherwise we're going to end up breeding a group of you know lunatics. And then when I, I saw that the, you put the the documentary about Enron in your training yes, plan, which yeah, is clearly thing. around the so, ethics and integrity piece, right? Yeah, because we all so many companies talk about you know company values and stuff. Well, Enron was a wonderful example of writing one thing on the wall and then living something very very different. But whilst I remember the N1 story, you know, the next generation of people might not. So yeah, we, we spent an afternoon watching and discussing the N1 movie. It's really important. We did product design, sales and marketing, finance, like the whole thing. And then you think, right, okay, you know, here are my subject areas. Who do I know in the organization or outside the organization who can teach something about that? 
and then you come up with a schedule. And you know what? It's not rocket science. It's not that hard. And the wonderful thing hybrid or remote working gives you, you know, I did a, a nine-day induction over two weeks. There was a bank holiday in the middle. I had 35 external speakers. Because when you're doing it in Zoom, you can ask someone, I could say to you, hey, would you come and do a 45 minutes or an hour talking about recruitment to my team? And it's only really going to take you a bit of prep time and an hour. Whereas if it's face-to-face, it's basically half a day or a full day out of the office. So actually, you can bring a lot of more voices to your onboarding. And I think if you think about, you know, what's it like being in a new job? Just, you know, foundation of nearly everything is empathy. I think when I, you know, I joined this financial services job last year, the first thing I had was everyone was talking a different language. Like, what the fuck are they talking about? They've got all these words and acronyms and stuff. I don't know what, what half of them are. So, you know, crowdsourcing in your company a, a glossary of funny words that you use in your industry <laughs> is a great way to help onboard people. And it's also quite fun. And the interesting thing is, if you do it, and it can be, you know, all you've got to do is share a Google Doc with, you know, with your staff saying, all the funny words that we use, write them in this document, explain them if you can. If you can't, someone else will explain it, just write the word. Your existing team it will reveal will also learn stuff from that because there'll probably be a whole lot of words and acronyms that they don't understand either. Um, yeah. And it's a great thing to give to your new joiners. So there's a whole lot of stuff. You just need to be a bit more deliberate and creative about it. So we've done the recruitment. We've talked a little bit about onboarding, right? Let's talk about this kind of core engagement piece. So like people are, th- are here, they're working. Hopefully they've been onboarded well. We've been cognizant of the fact that we don't really necessarily know how to predict exactly what their job's going to look like. So we've given them the core kind of context that they need to be successful. What happens when they're disengaged, right? Like how do we identify that? What does that look like to you? I think, look, if you're, when you're bigger, you know, people do all sorts of things with engagement surveys and stuff and try and get barometers of departments and things. I think actually if you're a manager and you're leading your team and you're doing one-to-ones in a sensible format and structure, you should be able to know how people, it's your job to know how people feel about work. And you can just ask them in a classic one-to-one, I'll say, you know, what pissed you off this week? What disengaged you this week? Because stuff engages and disengages people all the time. You know, I can go from a nine out of 10 to a two out of 10 in the space of a few hours within the same day. Mm -hmm. So it happens to everybody, including me. And I think you can talk about it and make it a question. You know, it's not, a disengaged employee is not a bad employee. It's someone that you just haven't treated in the right way. Or maybe someone that's where their path is just deviating from yours. And there's no need for blame around it. It it can be, it's often fixable. And if it's not, you, you, you can work a way out of it. So you talk about the difference between a small business and you say, you know, when you're big, you have tools and surveys and other things. But if you're small, it's kind of your job as a leader or as a manager to understand that. And I couldn't agree with that more. I guess one of the things that I always find super interesting is that, and, you know, you talk about this in the context of BT at the beginning of our chat today, right? Like as a small business, it's easy to design things correctly from day one. And you've not got all this inherent baggage and process and bureaucracy and other things to kind of move, like turn the Titanic. As a big business, though, you know, new leaders coming into these organizations or someone taking on an engagement role in a bigger organization, like, how have you seen large-scale organizations sort of turn the corner here? Every time I've seen an organization make a significant positive impact on engagement, the single biggest thing they've done is improve leadership communication. Um, Mm -hmm. Because in many organizations, leaders under-communicate. So they under-communicate in frequency and in levels of honesty as well. It makes a really big difference when senior leaders in large or small organizations 
start communicating regularly, so my preference is weekly, in an all-staff communication, in an open, transparent, humble way, talking about what they're seeing in the organisation, what's going on, what the issues are, what they need help with, calling out you know, stuff that's going well, thanking people openly, performing recognition in the communications piece and connecting with people that way. And it's interesting, you know, I think I get one of the questions I get asked a lot as well is about, you know, how is hybrid working and remote working affecting engagement and culture? And there are some leaders that think it's more difficult when you're hybrid and remote. You know, it's, it's all I've known. You know, Reward Gateway has been an international business for the last 10 years. So I've always had people in different offices. So I, I never had the luxury of having everyone in one place. And I think if you think you can only do culture if everyone's in the same room, you're going to have to have a reasonably small business mm-hmm. to be able to deliver that permanently because you're going, to out, you know, you're going to outgrow it. I mean, Doug Butler, who's my successor at RG, he's the most connected CEO I know. And he actually lives in San Francisco where we have no staff. We have staff on the East Coast of America, but not the West, and he lives in the West. And he's exceptionally well connected to everyone in UK, Bulgaria, Australia, and the US, because it's his choice, his behaviors that make the difference. He blogs every single Monday without fail internally, and it's the most read thing on our intranet every week. And he talks about you know what's going on, what's in his week, what he saw last week, calls out good things, makes requests for the workforce sometimes and asks for help. And he shows that he's really human as a result. And I think that's a thing that organizations of all sizes can start to do. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think like even, even on my own journey, right? So like I had a business fail when I was much earlier in my career. And I think that that gave me a lot of baggage on a personal level around communicating because I'd seen a business kind of slowly die, right? It didn't happen overnight, but I kind of knew it was happening before everybody else. And I think it wasn't until I had pinpoint become quote-unquote successful that I felt comfortable starting to share all of these things with because we do a weekly update every Friday and share everything transparently with the team like you talked about right at the beginning but what's been interesting is you know businesses have peaks and troughs and things go well and then they don't and I think what's been interesting from my perspective is I started sharing stuff when things were going really well and then for a little while things weren't going so well and that was the most transformational experience for me because that was when I've never been prouder of the team, right? Everybody had the context and they had the information they needed to go step up to the plate and do what needed to be done. And it's really set the tone of our culture since then. And it has been transformational for us, but also for me. And I don't hesitate to share warts and all, everything going on with the business now. But it's just interesting that, like my own shortcomings as a leader, that I needed things to be going really well before I felt comfortable starting to share. If that made sense? Yeah, I understand that totally. You know, and I was probably the same myself. I probably started sharing when things were going well. I think it's natural when things are going bad, you're frightened to share. And it's it's one of the pushbacks I get all the time from leaders is, you know, but you can't tell staff that things are going badly because. And then the sentence always trails off. They go because, and yeah. I always say because what, and they say well, some of them will get worried. I'm like, well, shouldn't they be? Because you're failing, <laughs> yeah, or that product line's failing. And like, you know, if you're working on a product line and it's failing, wouldn't you be pissed off if you got made redundant because it had failed and no one had told you it was failing? So no one gave you the chance to kind of like, you know, pull magic out of the hat. And I think it's, you know, when people say, well, you know, if I tell people that, you know, we're struggling, we're missing our targets, maybe some people will leave. I'm like, well, okay. Is that the worst thing in the world? So some people who don't want to work for an organization that's struggling, We'll leave, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, it's what we'd be left with. People want to fight for your survival, fight for your growth. Okay, that sounds good to me. 
that's it. It comes back to the point you made through the recruitment cycle though, right? Which is that like our EVP, our job descriptions, every touch point with the candidate pre-employment should be trying to put people off because we want to end up with the people that are left that really want the opportunity. But it's true when they're here as well, right? And I think from my perspective, I guess what I learned is people know anyway, right? In a smaller organization, you can't half share, you can't be half transparent because people know when things aren't going well and they'd rather hear it from you and have the narrative owned than hear it third hand or fifth hand or 10th hand, right? Totally. There's a great, one of my favorite quotes in the book that I wrote is from um, Richard Plepler, who at the time was the CEO of Home Box Office HBO. And he said, the building knows the truth, which is people know. And of course it's true. Like, you know, when RG launched health and wellbeing product in 2015 and no one was buying it. I mean, we couldn't, we literally couldn't mm-hmm. give it away. Well, everyone knew that because the implementation team weren't implementing it and the sales team weren't selling it and the service team had no one who had it. So, if you, you know, so not acknowledging we're really struggling with this product just makes you look like deluded or you're a liar or you're trying to, you know, you're not talking about the elephant in the room. Whereas, of course, if you're open about it and say, God, this product's not selling, tell us why it's not selling. You know, like, let's get a Slack channel open as to what do we need to do? What are the issues? You know, get the conversation going. What issues are sales having when they try and present the product? And then it turns out the sales aren't actually presenting the product because they don't know enough about it and they're scared of it. The whole, you know, organizations work so much better when you've got really open, fluid communication, you know, top down, but also between departments and between people. You know, you asked me earlier on, what would my playbook be? And I I sometimes, you know, irritate sales leaders and CEOs when they say like, Glenn, what should I do to drive my sales? And they want some lead gen tool. And I say, well, you haven't got Slack, so I think I'd implement Slack. I'm like, what the fuck's Slack gonna do? I'm like, well, your sales team needs to talk to your product team, and needs to talk to your service team, and needs to talk to the implementation team, and they all need to be talking to people on the help desk, because together they've got to win those clients. And together they've got to make the product better so that clients actually want it. I think that's really important. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't always tell people what they want to hear, right? You've got to give them what they need to hear. And I, I think, like, one thing that's super interesting, and I've heard you talk about this before, but, like, there's a difference between employee satisfaction and employee engagement. And I think, like, that's understood. But, like, what does the externality of this look like, right? So talk about things like Glassdoor. Like, what role do they play in the sort of external management of perception around employee engagement? So Glassdoor's... Um... I love Glassdoor. I used to hate it. Like most CEOs back in the day, we used to all hate Glassdoor because we thought it was the devil that was, you know, full of competitors saying evil things about us. It's just not true. I learned to embrace Glassdoor about seven or eight years ago. It was Charlie Taylor, who's, um, who was then Reward Gateway's marketing director and is now Tenzing's marketing director. I didn't understand how to deal with Glassdoor because I was like, how do I deal with these like public comments that have been written about us? Like, I don't know how to engage. And she said to me, just just forget that it's a public forum. And remember, this is someone that you hired, someone that you really liked enough for interview to hire, and this is their feedback to you based on their experience. And then reply to them as an individual. This is a one-on-one, just write the reply. And I think what's mm-hmm. interesting is you can turn almost any negative Glassdoor review into a positive by replying to it honestly with empathy. Because like if, someone, if what someone's saying is true, you just apologize for it and say, I'm really sorry that you had that experience. It's awful. And I don't want that to ever happen again. So I'm going to go and do a lot of work and try and figure out how that happened so it doesn't happen again. Yeah. There's so much you can learn from Glassdoor. And in my experience, it's so much better to embrace. Both myself and Doug, we uh, respond to all Glassdoor reviews personally within 72 hours. 
And when someone's reading, you know, when a potential um, candidate is reading Glassdoor, seeing negative reviews or even positive reviews unanswered and left hanging is really bad. Seeing them answered by the CEO is magical. And it's still rare enough that it can make you stand out. It's really good. No, that's awesome. And I, I think that there's been so many things to take away from this, but I think that this is a great place to wrap up because I'm super conscious of your time and really appreciate you sharing all these lessons with us. I think the theme of all of this and like rang true with the glass door answer there is like authenticity and actually being owned from like the top down, right? This is the CEO's responsibility, not something that's being delegated to marketing or employer branding. Like you need to own that narrative and own that voice. And I think everything you've said today has been amazing in that vein. So thank you so much, Glenn, for coming and joining us. Thanks, Tom. It's been a real pleasure and I'm really grateful. Thank you. Cool. And so I guarantee that nobody has listened to this and thought there isn't a takeaway and that nobody's listened to this and hasn't already realized that there's so much more to learn from Glenn. And I think in support of that, we've picked up 50 copies of Glenn's book and we'd love to share that with you guys for free. So uh, if you'd like a copy of the book, please email podcast at pinpointhq.com and the first 50 people will get that posted to them. Please include your address in the email. I think for more great tales from the trenches and best practice guidance, please, please, please stay tuned to The Talent Revolution. We've got more great quality content just like this coming at you every Tuesday. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks so much for listening.